0: markets, speculation, and risk.
1: This is the Chat With Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield.
2: What's up, good folks? Welcome to Chat With Traders podcast. This is episode 175. My guest is Jonathan Shapiro, a senior reporter at the Australian Financial Review. While Jonathan writes about a range of subjects from banking to hedge funds to private equity, he's renowned for stories that uncover dishonesty, and the crafty schemes of listed companies, for which he's won several awards. Our conversation begins with Jonathan telling the story of Blue Sky Alternative, a fund manager that came unstuck following the release of a short seller's research report. From there, we roll into a very detailed discussion about Jonathan's investigative work on Big Un. Without saying too much, Big was a video marketing company listed on the Australian stock market and a top performer in 2017. But as you'll soon hear, Jonathan discovered much of it was smoke and mirrors. Now to do this podcast, I met up with Jonathan at the AFR office. So there's also a video of our conversation. If you'd prefer to watch this video rather than just listen to the audio only, as you're doing now, make your way over to the Chat With Traders YouTube channel and you can find it there. And last thing, you'll hear us reference several of Jonathan's articles throughout. You can find links to all of these articles in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com slash 175. All right, let's get on with the show. I hope you enjoy this one. Here is Jonathan Shapiro. So you were saying something just before and I told you not to say too much because I thought it could be a good way to start the podcast. You're working on an article at the moment or a series of
1: articles? Uh, Well, we're working – a company we covered pretty closely, uh, almost exactly this time last year was Blue Sky Alternative Investments, which was a stock market dialing until um, Glaucus, which is a US uh, research group, published a short report and sent the share price tumbling. And on Monday or or Tuesday, I think it was Tuesday, they – uh, went into receivership so that is kind of like a, a big moment that signals the end of Blue Sky and as reporters we tend to kind of use that as a, a marker to look back at, at what happened and how Blue Sky collapsed. So um, a few days ago we kind of retold the story just in a kind of a chronology of how Blue Sky collapsed but for the weekend we're looking at all the hedge funds and traders that saw it coming well before it collapsed. What was it about Blue Sky that made them – think this um, was doomed to fail, so so that's what we're working on at the moment. There's about three or four hedge funds that had actually shorted BlueScar long before Glaucus had, had uh, published their report, and they actually took a lot of pain. I mean, the, A lot of them were shorting BlueScar shares at around $4, $5, $6, $7, $8, went up to about I think it almost hit fifteen dollars. Um, so they took a lot of pain. They had total conviction in their position, but that's not enough. They were really hurting. I mean, the, the position was doubling, almost doubling against them. So, so the article we're working on is is a what made them so convinced that Blue Sky was way overvalued and due for a for a, a blow up, uh, and how they managed their position going so much against them when they had conviction in the fundamentals, but the, the trading was going totally against them. So yeah, that, that's what we're working on at the moment. Now, a lot of people who are gonna hear this probably aren't
2: familiar with the Blue Sky story. Um, and obviously we can probably dig up a couple of articles of yours and put them in the show notes, but just give us a bit of a, for some context, what
1: is the, the Blue Sky story? Blue Sky uh, is a fund manager, the same way as Magellan or Platinum is a fund manager, but their point of difference was that they were not going to invest in listed equities or traditional asset classes that are easy to access that mums and dads can almost get access themselves. They were going to focus on uh, private or alternative assets. So things like investing in private equity, um so investing in startups, small businesses that were that they thought were going to grow, property development, so um, be, being able to kind of commit capital to a residential property development commercial property development, uh, and one of their big sleeves was agriculture, water rights, investing in farms. So their pitch to wealthy Australians was, hey, we will get you exposure to this important asset class. It's, um, it's, you can get great returns from it. It's different. You can diversify out of listed equities, uh, bonds, um, and we'll allow you to do that. So what they did is they created a whole lot of funds uh, raised them they created a fund raised the money and they were effectively unlisted funds so they just but they got so good at the marketing that they kept on creating fund after fund after fund after fund so um, most private equity funds would raise a whole lot of money and then go and deploy it into anywhere between five and 20 companies but blue sky decided oh well do the Vinamofo fund we'll do the shoes of prey fund because they got they just created this conveyor belt of of funds uh, and the funds took huge fees up front and then charged their investors fees over the life of the fund but because these um, assets that they invested in were private and there it was there was no real kind of stock market valuation for them they had it could be argued they had a lot of discretion to value those assets and what th- those assets kept doing was being valued up and as they were valued up they pre-booked the performance fees they were going to earn from when they kind of closed out the fund and returned the money. So what you landed up happening was um, their profits kept going up, even though their cash didn't go up because, I mean, it was still costing them their money to uh, to manage the funds. But um, that was kind of the thesis, is is it all kind of relied on the private value of these assets being valued upwards. And that was kind of the big bear case, uh, at least until Glaucus came along, is that this is just kind of they're mocking their own homework and they, they effectively have discretion to determine their own profits and their own valuation. And then they went on a fundraising spree. So they just desperately tried to gather as many assets as they could because it just helped with their earnings and helped with the valuation.
2: Okay. And this Glaucus report, that did that mark the top? The Glaucus,
1: yes, the, almost. So I think it peaked at the end of uh, – at the start of 2018 and – uh, Glaucus came around uh, end of March, early April. So the stock had come off a little bit heading into that and that's because Blue Sky went out and raised $100 million from the equity market. So um, literally about two weeks before the Glaucus report came out, um, Blue Sky pointed to brokers, raised $100 million. And at the time, a lot of the short sellers that had had this thesis that blue sky was unsustainable had actually kind of tapped out and exited the trade because they thought well look even if we're right they have 100 million dollars of cash on their balance sheet so they can plug any holes that could emerge so so i guess the share price came off a little bit because they'd issued more stock and um created more supply uh, so it had kind of come off but it was still very high it was in the twelve and a half dollars range and listed in 2012 at a dollar so people got very wealthy off it and announced zero
2: (laughs) man now you said before that uh you knew of some hedge funds about three or four hedge funds that started shorting the stock around was it four
1: or five dollars yeah the big moment for the short sellers or for the ones that we um at least have spoken to either at the time or retrospectively um as we've kind of gone to them and asked them about their experience their big moment was, I think, in um, August 2016. The founder sold about 3.4 million of his eight odd million shares, and they saw that as a as a as a catalyst. They thought, well, if the and he also stepped off the board, so that means he could sell shares without having to. Oh, okay. file any um any uh or well, under most conditions he could t- decrease his holdings without having to um declare it declare it, right. it yeah so, so they saw that as a big moment first him getting out stepping down getting out and stepping off the board they just the the conspiracy theorist short sellers thought well this is his opportunity to lighten his um position
2: mm. okay now how how do you know about the hedge funds that were shorting stock you know around four or five dollars like is this Sort of part of your role as a journalist that you're out there actively speaking to these fund managers?
1: Yes. Um, but we don't always know when they're short. Often they will tell you a lot more post, you know, <laughs> post the fact many years later, they would they'll tell you that. Often you'll they'll just some of them will just tell you what things they see are wrong. Often we would look at a company that is either going up or going down and, and ring a whole lot of them and ask just ask them what they think's going on. Uh, and get their, th- their theory and their thesis and then... But we always follow quite a stringent process. So we if someone tells us something, we never, we'll never we we'll never just kind of put it out there. We'll kind of check with the company, check with uh, long-only investors and try and triangulate some version of the truth. Um, but I do remember actually around the... Not long after Sower Be Sold, there were a lot of other hedge funds that were trading the, that could be either long or short the stock or just investors that um had looked at it and didn't have a either d- didn't own it or, or and instead clear but had a lot of theories as to what was driving the share price up so yeah it, it's a big part of our job is to just talk to um to all sides i, I do like talking to the short sellers because they offer a contrarian view um um, you always get the long side from the company and from shareholders and from brokers. Um, um, and actually, Blue Sky is a good example of, of I think, what we see a lot, which is a lot of companies that raise a lot of capital aren't necessarily good investments because they're raising capital. I mean, if you're constantly having to dilute your register, go to the market for capital, there, there's... It's it's not a it's not a hard and fast rule, but te- it tends to be that a company that needs capital isn't a great company. Like a, a, Amazon's a good example of the opposite. It never had to raise a dollar. Like it did its IPO and it never went back to the market for capital. But whereas there are companies that are constantly returning to the market to raise new equity, and the irony is those are the those are the companies that the stockbrokers love because they make money from they make some money from trading, but they make a, a bulk of their their money from helping companies to raise capital, so it's almost this um, convenient relationship of if there's a company that raises a lot of capital, um, they'll be the brokers will tend to gravitate towards them. You'll you tend to see very positive research about the company. The stockbrokers are pushing it on their clients. Um, so, a Blue Sky, I think, was a good example of that very capital hungry um, company that all the brokers loved, and I think there's there's probably a few other examples.
2: Right, and when did you start reporting on the Blue Sky story? Was that after the Glaucus report or you'd sort of become interested in it beforehand?
1: Well, I wrote something, I think it was in 2017, so uh, the article's titled How Bright is the Blue Sky Model? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'd summed up some of the short theses that had come out around that time about around Salby selling his stock. I think can think of a handful of people that – it raised a red flag for them, and I somehow got in touch with them and and put together a thesis. I think it was quite a balanced piece. It was just saying these guys are onto something. There is a huge amount of superannuation money in Australia, not a lot of it inv- is invested in private markets, and they've they're offering a um, you know a solution to that problem or or a product that that in a, in a market that can grow. So I think it was fairly balanced, but it did raise a lot of questions around their revenue around their um how their profits were kind of growing more than their cash and how they were um how reliant were their profits on fees that they had booked but yet to actually have earned you know or yet to have been paid out because it was they were earning fees on the value of the assets going up and that they were booking fees on the value of the assets going up they hadn't actually been paid those fees so there was a discrepancy between fees booked in an accounting sense and fees collected so um, but blue sky kept going up. So, <laughs> yeah,
2: that's that's incredible that you said there were hedge funds who were shorting it around five dollars,
1: and it went up to fourteen. Like you said, they must
2: have taken a lot of pain on those positions.
1: It is, you know, this is also a very interesting thing. There are a lot of, and you probably there's probably a few examples of Tesla's actually a terrific example, and there's others. I can, I mean, Afterpay is a company a lot of people have shorted. Uh, I think the jury's out on that one. <laughs> Tesla, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest, and I'm not an expert on Tesla, but uh, it's a similar situation. A lot of this, Tesla has had a lot of short sellers and critics talking it down uh, and uh, suggesting that that it's unsustainable. From I remember actually having breakfast with a hedge fund manager in 20, I think it would have been 2012 or 13, and Tesla it probably was closer to 2013, but Tesla was at $35. And I asked him what he thought about Tesla because I thought it was, I just met someone that had just started working there, uh, working here in Sydney, sell, uh, helping to kind of build Tesla's profile. And I thought, wow, these cars look look quite terrific. And he, his comment to me was, don't be silly. Every every half intelligent investor is shorting Tesla. You should be long Volkswagen, <laughs> short Tesla. Uh, so I don't think that's a trade that worked out. But I guess it just goes to show you that um you can be an intelligent, smart, forensic investor, but you can kind of pick the wrong fight. You can mm. pick something that can either is either is onto a great trend uh, that defies almost the fundamentals, and you like they've found a great idea in a great market, and the kind of the fundamentals sort themselves out, um, or you can be up against extreme hype that um, you know the promoter of the stock can just do a better job. <laughs> Of promoting that stock more than than kind of the fundamentals catching up. So, uh, the lesson from talking to a lot of people that that are brave enough to short shares is that it's it's more than just uncovering problems with the company. You've got to manage a whole lot of other risks.
2: Yeah, totally, totally. And you said um, blue skies. Is uh,
1: it being delisted? Well, it went into receivership uh, this week, so I think it, yeah, I think it would be delisted. I think it was at eighteen cents when it delisted. The interesting thing is. Just over a year ago, it had a, had a very strong balance sheet. had a hundred million dollars of cash, minimal debt, and now in May twenty nineteen, it's defaulted on a loan. Which just shows you how quickly something can unravel.
2: Mm. So, what happens to any investors or holders of that stock
1: when it when it becomes delisted? I'm not sure. I think you just. Uh, I think it's a long process. You're just in line as a creditor. You know, so you have a claim on the assets, and you have to let the receivership process work its way out and then at some stage in the distant future, I think the receiver will say, you as a equity holder in the business will get X cents in the dollar and it's most likely to be a zero, I think. I think oh, okay. there'd be a whole lot of lenders that would have claims. So I, th- I think I'm not an expert on this. I've, I've seen a few of these situations, but I think you just you just get in line and you're actually, as an equity holder, you're at the very back of the line. So, Okay, right.
2: Well, another – kind of high profile case which you've covered was uh big yeah. and you're um quite well known for that so um maybe we should talk about that and, yeah I'm and maybe go into that sure and um i can
1: talk underwater about big <laughs> it, was a, it was a real adventure
2: <laughs> right well i mean let's just start off by talking about what actually got you interested in big and maybe what what was the company big like what did
1: all they right do? so yeah to bef- yeah before i kind of explain how i got interested I'll, the background on on, on big so it was a a kind of a micro cap slash small cap slash mid cap as it was <laughs> inflating its way up the stock market. Um, it yeah, I think it was a favourite amongst uh, a lot of small cap investors and, and retail investors. Um, and it the business itself made uh, videos for small businesses. So if you were a cafe, Joe's Cafe down the road, someone from Big would at some stage would have given you a call and asked you if you'd be interested in them making a a promo- promotional video for you they'd come and film your cafe and interview you and make a brief minute and a half or three minute video about your cafe and they produce it for you and then if you paid them for the video they would host it on their YouTube channel and, and help you kind of market your cafe through this video the whole their whole thesis was that video was the future of the internet and you needed to get on it and if you were it was a great way for small businesses to market themselves in the digital age so uh, sorry
2: that that post the video on their
1: YouTube channel? Yeah, well, that's kind of the controversial thing. I mean, a YouTube, they kind of, their pitch was that they had this YouTube channel that had a lot of subscribers and if they produced a video for you, they would put it on your channel and you would get the benefit of all those YouTube viewers because okay. they said they had hundreds of thousands of viewers, which I think in hindsight it turned out to be, I think you can buy those viewers in a <laughs> at a click farm. So I don't think they were real viewers. But also YouTube is free, so you shouldn't actually. I, don't, I think it's. Mm. I think it's a breach of of the terms of YouTube that that um, a channel can pay you to host. Um, oh, okay. So they yeah. they had a YouTube channel and their pitch was that YouTube their YouTube channel had a lot of traffic and they would make the video for you and put it on their YouTube channel and and bring a lot of eyeballs to your to your video and help promote your cafe or your your florist or your beautician. Mm. So that was what the company da- did i mean the the kind of uh, the first discrepancy was they were ch- they, they were charging 12000 um, dollars to, to produce the videos, which, oh, we've got a cameraman here, maybe he can tell us <laughs> if, they, if that's what he's charging you to do this video. Uh, he's shaking his head. So, I mean, I think it's somewhere like three $400 or so, somewhere in that maybe the side depending on the quality. So $12,000 is way out of whack and small businesses are very tight with their dollars. They run tight margins, they've got a lot of costs. They, they're not going to be blowing $12,000. I mean, that's almost like – uh, that pays for a staff member for the full year over uh, to work on it on a given day over a week. So it was kind of out of whack, and they said they would charge a thousand dollars a month throughout the year, and not for just hosting to, the video. Yeah, on their YouTube so it they, would all be kind of in the cost producing the video and then hosting it over a year and using and and running the marketing through the video. So that right. was the first thing is that it just seemed like a very expensive. <laughs> um, product versus what people were willing to pay and and there are a whole other there are a few other red flags um one was a ceo had uh changed his name and changed it back and that was actually we thought we'd struggle to find that but it was in the prospectus they were forced to kind of make that disclosure in their um in their prospectus so We thought we'd have to go to birth, deaths, and marriages to. We were told about this, but it was really just there in the open that the CEO had, for whatever reason. And I think as we kind of explored the story, it became clearer why, became more clear why he may have changed his name and changed it back. The other thing is they were um, issuing; they were making. They said they were making a lot of cash. So this is this is this is why the stock market embraced the stock so much. Is because. Every quarter they would put out their 4C and it would show their cash was going up massively. So their cash receipts, so their, their sales. Uh, and, and a lot of startups um, say their revenues are going up or their user growth is going up, but it seldom translates into cash. So the more cynical investors out there are focused on cash. I said, if, if this company is making money, it's become it should be becoming more valuable. And Big was showing extraordinary growth in cash. I think at one stage... They were run rating over a full year, hundred million dollars of cash, which is an, <laughs> is an incredible amount of money. So the stock market was, was buying the story, um, but they were not paying their staff or they were not paying a lot of their costs in cash. So they were making all the cash, but they were choosing instead to pay uh, providers with ultra cheap options, so 20 cent options when the share price was going from $2 to $4 to $5, they were still paying their staff with these very cheap kind of options to buy stock at 20 cents, which is highly dilutive um, and kind of makes no corporate finance sense. If if you're generating all this cash, you should have no worries just (laughs) paying cash rather than almost giving away your company for free, giving away a portion of your company for free. And they were doing this quite systematically. um, And, yeah, that was kind of one of our – one of the red flags we had. The other one was that they changed the auditor. They had this – Auditor for a long time uh, for for about two years. I had PKF, which is a quite a reputable firm, and they decided to change and hire a a, a single auditor, a single man shop on the other end of the country in WA, and it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. why they'd done that, it seemed like a strange move. They said that this auditor had had experience with them, but when we we looked up the history, all the auditor had done his did a backdated audit of. Uh, at a period when they'd only operated for a month. So they said this company knew them better, but the existing auditor had a lot more experience with the company. So,
2: so are these the things which got you interested in big or are these the things which you started to uncover once you started looking into it?
1: No, all of those things were apparent from the start. Okay, uh, So they were all like that, – that's just kind of like the ground. Those are all the things that didn't make sense to us. Um, but for us, um, all those – all of that in itself, to me, thought there is something going on here. But um, the real challenge, and this is kind of why I got so involved in this, is it was a real mystery. It's like, how are they showing all this cash? This is almost something that we. there's been a whole lot of kind of accounting shenanigans over the years, and, and most of them are well-known to, to um, forensic accountants. They can spot things quite easily. They can see, oh, we've seen that before. We saw that with Enron. We saw that with Starnhoff. We saw that with... Um, a whole, um, a whole lot of companies. So, the good, the good forensic accountants have seen all the tricks. Under, but this one was a little different because they were make, they were showing all this cash, and you can't fake cash. It's, it's not something you can do. But my suspicion is that they, were, is that they were doing something that was overstating their cash, and it was how am I gonna, how am I gonna find out what they're doing? And um, it was quite difficult and it relied on a lot of luck and a lot of very fortunate tip offs at fortunate periods. But it was a it was a really kind of fun, exciting, stressful at times journey to find out how are they showing a hundred million dollars how are they showing that they were generating a hundred million dollars of cash, but not actually generating anything.
3: Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the US markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
2: So this might be a really naive question, but why is it so difficult to
1: fake how much cash you're holding? Well, because the auditor has to look at the bank statements. So, the Well, the auditor has access to the bank statement so if your bank account says 10 million in june and uh 20 million in july 10 million dollars had to have gone into the bank account over that okay. period so yeah it's it's kind of their bank statements and you can track money and and that was the thing that the money was going into the bank statement so okay. into their bank account so that the cash was coming into the business
2: well i'd love to ask you about how you went on that journey to uncover that that cash wasn't i don't okay. know was it
1: there or <laughs> well, okay well i'll try and i'll uh, i could either tell you a three-hour version or a 10-minute version <laughs> or i'll I'll try to do it in, in even even below 10 minutes um well the first thing i did which is similar to what we did on blue sky which is we've just wrote a story saying what we know and what we don't know and kind of so we called it uh, big Un, the most unbelievable stock of the year because it was actually in 2017, it was a stock that had done better than any other stock on the whole exchange. It had gone up five times, I think, or, or even more, I think 2,000%. So it had gone from 20 cents to close to $5. So it was the end of the year and we thought, this is a fair story. How do we explain the best-performing stock of the year where investors made 2,000% returns? So we just listed all those kind of red flags that I'd, that I'd mentioned to you. Um and said this is kind of curious but you know what the company says they're making money and cash doesn't lie and left it at that and it was it was almost it was a bit ambitious we thought we could solve solve it by just calling up a few uh, good accountants and someone might be able to pick something up and we sent the accounts around no one really picked up anything so we didn't really solve it so we just landed up writing well these are these are some of the things that are curious to us but it acts, it acted as a bit of a calling card <laughs> right. So um, there would have been people around the country or whether they were actually whether they were investors, private investors, whether they were people with some knowledge of how the company worked or some experience with the executives. Some of them got in touch with us. Uh, and it was a long process after that of just people coming to us and us taking little bits of information and pulling it all together to work out what was actually going on. I think within a couple of days we got well, I think the next day we got a very good tip, which was that we needed to look into this company called Finstro, which is accounting payments company, you know, that Big had partnered with. So the official line is that when we ring up these small businesses, we will cross-sell this Finstro accounts management product where you can factor your invoices, which means you can They'll help you with your uh, day-to-day financing and your cash flows. Um, financier basically. So, they said, we need to look into that. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. That means perhaps they are factoring their invoices, which is… What do you mean by that? What, what's well, factoring? Factoring is, um, if you're a small business, uh, a good, good example is so <laughs> if I was a journalist at a dog food company and we would sell products to Woolworths and Woolworths would not pay us for 90 days and we'd have cash flow problems could be sending them all our product and the money was very slow to come back in so a factoring company will basically pay you 95% of the of the cash up front and collect the money from us and make the 5% okay so our cash flow problems are solved because um, we our margin is decla- is decreased a little bit but so we thought that Finstro was probably that, um Getting the money from the clients and helping their cash look better. So, so that that was our working assumption. It turned out not quite to be the case, um, but that was an important tip. And we started looking into Finstro and who owned Finstro. It was, a, it was a Sydney financing company called FC Capital, and so we kind of had a suspicion that they were they were partly they would explain the extraordinary cash growth the business some but we didn't know exactly what it, we just knew it was a good clue because we, we it seemed plausible that that these guys were helping and then um, we We tried and weeks went by and I kind of looked at it and dropped it and, and looked at it and you kind of you can't, you can't force issues too much because the information decides when it comes to you <laughs> as hard as you look like the key insights don't just happen because you you're forcing it It's so Another, and then a big moment came when um, Ownership Matters, which is a kind of proxy advice, a very good accounting, a good on accounting and governance, they published a report on the back of the article we wrote to their clients which just said that the company would actually not be profitable if they reversed the, you know how I was explaining about the options, that they would give out cheap shares instead mm-hmm. of paying people with cash. So they kind of back-solved that and said, right, well, the real cost they're paying for these expenses if they were paying and accounting for real expenses, the company arguably wouldn't be making much money. So they were saying, if, um, basically, they were insinuating that by not paying people with real money and using cheap shares, they are overstating their profits. Effectively, uh, these people who um,
2: they were paying with the options—yeah, these weren't employees. These were people who were
1: um, offering or. Doing giving services, to yeah, outside big. consultants and things yeah. like that, yeah. So, so they th- they said, look, if, if you were if they were actually paying these people in cash, or sorry, not in cash, but in real money, rather than giving them options that were undervalued and then would mm-hmm. appreciate to the current trading price, they arguably weren't profitable. And then they did a whole lot of work around the chairman and uh, come to the conclusion that the chairman was not properly disclosing how much of the company he owned. So that they just did a governance report for their clients and said, look, there's, these are two governance issues. And that for me was like, well, maybe I'll write about that. And while I'm writing about that, I'll go to the company and ask them about their relationship with Frinstro. I them to clear it up because we'd also uh, seen a copy of their sales manual that, they, that their call center people read out when they try and get a small business to agree to a video. And we'd seen that there was a lot of reference to, hey, if you sign up now, Finstro, you can get a free line of credit from Finstro and all that stuff. So we thought this is, this is kind of not quite a smoking gun, but it 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 validates our suspicion that the financing company is deeply involved or more involved than they had cared to admit in, in the process of selling videos. So we asked the company, um, we thought, well, we'll ask them about the ownership matters. And then while we're asking them, let's ask them to clear up their relationship with Finstro. And that kind of set off a whole panic. It seemed like it set off a whole panic at the company because they took forever to get back to us. Um, And in the interim, we found out that the financing company had actually been one of the people, one of the parties that had been issued these ultra-cheap shares. So that for us was was a a significant smoking gun because it meant that the financing company that was advancing them cash was getting paid in cheap shares that were going up because of the cash that was being advanced to them. If that, if if you follow that, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so for us, we thought that was quite scandalous. We we wrote about it, um, and then it was um, it was about a week where we thought we'd kind of cracked this case, or at least cracked it open in the in the public, and we thought that, we thought that things would come to a head. We'd kind of shown, we kind of provided enough evidence that some that something was not right at this company, and they were not being totally open with their disclosures. But that was when it got really kind of interesting for me. Well, in a negative way, because um, I began to appreciate how many um, people had, how many mums and dads and punters at home had uh, invested pretty heavily in the stock, and they didn't take kindly to any suggestion that big any any suggestion other that than that big was the future of video and the future of the internet and the next Google uh, took a lot of exception and and. It was kind of an eye opener for me because I'd covered situations like this before with Slater and Gordon and a couple of others where you uncovered something that people were heavily invested in or, or were, um, and you get a lot of negativity and criticism. But this was kind of interesting and on a, on a whole new level. And uh, it was my first experience of it. I think it happens quite a lot now, it's pretty common and you just need to have thick skin about it. But I, I was quite amazed at this army of, um, uh, I guess trolls, but our trolls is I don't hold anything against them because they've invested a lot of money. They've done their work. They've have a lot of faith in the business. Mm-hmm. They've put a substantial portion of their um, tra- of their position in this company. So it's understandable that they'd be upset and angry. And um. So how were they getting in contact with you? Oh, Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. um. Oh, yeah. I. I mean, I didn't get too. Um, upset about it but it was quite relentless and quite scary (laughs) at times Uh, but um, yeah it was just a new it's just a new thing I guess that journalists these days have to deal with especially if they're trying to uncover things that are unkosher I guess you've just got to be prepared for this Um, uh, maybe I was slightly prepared but it's not totally prepared for it. Mm. Um, yeah, and you just got to – I think in the past if I'd done – if this was 10 years ago, I'd just get – the editor would get two angry letters of which one he might pass to me and I would just crumple it up and throw it in the bin. But now you're getting like an army of – so the big accusation against me was that I was working for short sellers, that that a whole, peop, a whole lot of people had shorted the shares and I was – and I'd shorted the shares myself and I was now – Basically, putting out this ownership matters. It was the theory that they'd shorted the shares. So, there was a conspiracy theory that me, ownership matters, and a whole bunch of evil dark hedge funds had, um, were going to, were making money off my reporting. Uh, and they'd found that some CFD report, which showed that volumes went up on the Friday before my article or, or the Monday, I can't remember exactly. And yeah, for, um, for a few weeks, I just got these constant accusations that I was, um, and that ASIC was investigating, and <laughs> so you didn't have a position. No, no, absolutely okay, not. Just clear no, that up. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. And actually, when I started writing about the stock, the person that first kind of alerted me to this said, "Look, this is actually a stock that very that is almost impossible to short. It is not a lot of borrow, which means not a lot of stock available to be sold short. Said, because it was tightly held by retail investors, and you could short some through." um uh, in CFDs, but very it was very insignificant. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, I remember hearing that and thinking, great, this is one where I don't have to <laughs> be accused of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay.
2: of so the, why was it so difficult to
1: short that stock? just I think there just wasn't much shares available to borrow. So I think the only shares available to borrow were from people that had bought big through Contracts for Difference and the Contracts for Difference provider would allow someone to take the other side of that long position so yeah if you'd bought big through a cfd you'd have a cfd position a derivative position in big and i think they would allow someone to take the other side of that yeah. that trade gotcha. and but uh, most people were buying it on the stock market not through
2: cfds yeah um now i wanted to ask you um just before like through this process up to this point how much had you actually been talking to big the company like would you Try and speak with them. They yeah, well, that was the other you?
1: accusation that I never. Well, yeah, we we before we wrote anything, we would. Uh, so when I did that article at the start of year, we had a lot of detailed. Que- uh, Sent them a lot of detailed questions, got a lot of detailed responses, incorporated it all into the uh, into the article. Um, I think they were quite grateful for that, and then throughout that, I would email them every kind of everything I was going to write about the company. I would email them so, every day almost. Um, for the first two – until they stopped ac- even acknowledging receipt of the emails. So at, after about two weeks, I just stopped bothering them. It was, I, I think I even sent them an email and said, look, given you're not responding, I'm not going to seek your, your comment anymore. So okay. they had opportunities to um, – I think they were speaking through other people, through proxies <laughs> on social media. <laughs> right. W- what do you mean by that? Oh, like well, they okay. had alias accounts and – Oh, I think there were some holders that seemed to be – saying things that sounds like, sounded like it would have come from the company. I, I don't know that for sure, but I got that impression. Okay. Um, so I think I was so, sort of getting their, their view across to me. But um, no, we, well, I mean, the thing about – at the paper, we always try – we have a no surprises policy. We don't want anyone, good or bad, to wake up in the morning and open the paper and be shocked to see – them being accused of something, or being suggested they've done something without the question questions having gone to them. So, right. and, and a a it's I think it's a good policy. It's right, but also uh, we don't want to be wrong. So if there's some little thing we've missed and we send it to the company or to the person, and they say, "Oh, you're totally wrong." you've f- – let me show you this document, or <laughs> let me point you to this part of the accounts, and you go, "Oh, yeah, sorry." <laughs> yeah, because your reputation's
2: on the totally, line, absolutely.
1: Right? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely integral. Is um, I mean, often suggestions we're just trying to get clickbait, and but that's it's not true. Like our our overriding um, priority is our reputation, the credibility of the paper, credibility of the reporter, that overrides any desire for for um. Obviously, we want to write great stories and we want as many people to read them as possible, but overriding is our credibility. So, we wouldn't risk it for an incremental fact or accusation or anything like that. Yeah.
2: Now, I don't know if I missed this just before or a little bit earlier, but um, I don't know that you explained how
1: they were actually um, sort of fudging $100 (laughs) million (laughs) in cash. Yeah. Um, So – Okay, i There's a little bit before that, but it's probably not as interesting. So ultimately, what we finally determined, uh, and we got a tip off that um, someone sent us a shot of an invoice and said, "Look, this small business, let's call them Jack's Cafe, has this is an internal fo- uh, photo of their um, of, our, of their computer, of their, and it shows that this, comp- this Jack Joe's has been invoiced twelve thousand dollars." internally so in big's accounts there's twelve thousand dollars that this customer has agreed to pay and they've been invoiced but they said go and ring joe's and you'll find out that it's not the case <laughs> um it was, it was actually a beautician and i harassed this poor lady for for five days just to get her just i just wanted her to say hey can you just confirm that you've never used the service before and, and she said, yes, they even called me on Friday. They want me to sign up and I refused to sign up. They made a video for free and I hated it. So I don't want anything to – I keep telling them, thanks but no thanks. I'm like, well, that's interesting because <laughs> they've invoiced you $12,000. <laughs> Internally, they've book, booked you as having – they've achieved a $12,000 sale. So I thought that must be what's going on everywhere. And But they never sent the invoice to her? No. Okay. What they – what eventually came out after, after we – Oh, the other interesting thing, actually, as a, as a aside, is they had thirty thousand, thirty million dollars of cash on their balance sheet. So all this cash was coming in, was staying in in Big's balance sheet. So they actually had a mountain of money. So that was the other thing we had to solve: like, if that money, how do we explain that that thirty million dollars of cash? What we, what I did find out, is that. And this was—I was at dinner with a friend who's a very good accountant, and I was not like tossing and turning and like really bugging me that we hadn't really been able to solve this. And I pulled out the accounts over dinner, and he scrolled through, and he goes, "Oh, as an auditor, one of the tests we do is a interest cover interest test, which is we look at the interest uh, income on the profit and loss, how much interest the company's made over a, over a period, and we look at that as a percentage of their balance of cash. So if you have a um, million dollars of cash, you should get something close to two percent, because if you have all that money, you're going to make sure that you earn an appropriate return on it. Right? You know, it's okay. A, it's a meaningful. It's a meaningful. The two, three, four, five percent deposit rate matters a lot when your balance is very large. Mm. So, you'd expect that to be in, um, in a high interest earning or at least a moderately interest earning account. And we quickly, quickly did the math on that, and it was very low. It was like ten thousand dollars. So, like you'd earn that in a, in an afternoon. <laughs> so, where did you see that ten thousand dollars? That was just taking the thirty million dollars of cash, thirty yeah, thirty million dollars of cash, and comparing that to the interest. So that ten dollar uh, that's
2: that ten thousand dollars that was on um, sort of
1: uh, over like six months or something like that.
2: Yeah, that was you saw that from um, yeah, on the there. accounts. Yeah. Yeah, so they and that was from an announcement.
1: There was their published accounts. I think either their full year or the half year accounts. Okay, I don't remember. Yeah. So it was yeah, it was their audited accounts and show released to the market. Yeah, yeah, um, it just show that they actually were not making any interest on this thirty mm, million dollars of cash. That's Very interesting. So what I did the next day is there's a something called a PPSI register, which is every time um, you lend money that is secured against an asset, that asset effectively is registered. The lender registers that asset. So, if you have a Toyota, um, a lease like a, um, a car lease, Toyota will there will be there will be a record that um, that that asset is secured. You know, <laughs> um, Toyota has a claim on that asset. So we um, we did a search the next day, and I'd done this before, but I did it on Big Un, not Big Review TV, which is the operating company. Okay. And we found that FC Capital, the financing company, had security. Over every overall of um, big review TV's assets, so which meant that they had security over the cash, which okay. meant the cash was theirs. <laughs> Effectively, they had control over over their thirty million dollars of cash. What do you mean by they had control over it? Uh, they, they had it was theirs. It was theirs. Yeah, basically, it, yeah. To kind of yeah, just to, to to dumb down the language, it was theirs. It was in a trust account that they had control over. So, um. So that that money hadn't come
2: from video sales.
1: It had gone gone through big, it had gone into big, into big's accounts, into a cash account, um, but that FC capital controlled. So FC basically still had (laughs) access to the money or control over the money. Um, So that was a big red flag for it. I mean, that was a big kind of smoking gun. It just meant that all the cash that was going into big didn't actually belong to them. Uh, in a in a full sense FC capital had total security over it then what came out not long after that is they finally revealed what they were doing which is that every 12,000 like every time they would make an invoice every time every time they would do a free video they would write an invoice and about some of that would go to big so that they could manage their expenses and pay for their video guys and stuff like that so they operate so I think out of every twelve grand, maybe three grand would go to Big, so that they could use in a working capital account. I think something like five grand would, or six grand would go into this trust account, which Big couldn't really touch, and um, the difference would go back to FC Capital Finance Company as a commission. So, okay. And if the customer decided a few days later that he wasn't interested in the video, um. All Big had to do was find a new customer to replace that contract. Mm -hmm. So, they just had to find, instead of Joe's cafe, they had to find Jack's cafe and they could replace, they could drop Jack in where Joe was and life goes on. So, it was just a money merry-go-round really and it was fooling the market because the cash was going into the company looking like cash but it wasn't, it was either being held there for safekeeping (laughs) by the financing company and the rest was going back to them as a commission and F- FC Capital, the financing company, was getting shares at a deep discount. So they were benefiting from the process of the money going into, into the company, inflating the valuation of the shares they were being given. So so that's how they did it. That's kind of how they faked the cash. They just came up with a very convoluted, uneconomical arrangement with a cooperative financing company that was prepared to push money through the, through the company so... Gave the impression that they're um, they're um, they were generating a lot of cash.
2: So, what do you think was the the motivation of uh, the management at Big? Like, do you feel as though they set out um, with the intentions of you know, I guess committing financial? It was fraud, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm always reluctant to use the F word because. Okay. Uh, so uh, yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's <laughs> not use that word. <laughs> so, but let's say, did they set out? you know, did they have intentions of doing things which were a little bit
1: sketchy? Well, well, I think they listed in 2014 and the share price went nowhere, you know, just kind of bumbled along uh, at 20 cents a share and they struggling. And then I think we, when I, mean, I, I wrote about a big sum up story to explain how it all happened, there was a moment, I think, when they figured something out and they all got very excited and they raised some money and they all got very excited and the CEO was kind of, Came up with all these like um, payment plans. Like you, you could tell, something was they were on the cusp of something, and, and then this happened. And then they they changed auditors. They came up with these new started issuing all these options. So I think it's I think at some stage they figured out a way to to do this or to they figured out this financing arrangement, and they probably. I think my suspicion is some people told them, look, if you can convince the market that you can generate cash, the market will reward you and your share prices will go up. So
2: so you think they were aware that what they were doing could be deceiving to investors?
1: Well, unless they accidental geniuses, you know, unless they kind of like, <laughs> unless they genuinely thought that this convoluted financing arrangement where the money goes in and it gets held in account and kicks back as a commission, which kind of makes very little practical sense, uh, unless they genuinely thought that was the best way to run their business and they just accidentally got the benefit of the market thinking they were making a lot of money. Um, eventually, they restated their accounts and um, uh, after, we, after our coverage, they were forced to restate their accounts. It took them a very, very long time, I think over a year, and what they put out just showed the total opposite of well, how they represented. They were losing money, they were unprofitable, they were deeply in debt, they were... It was, it was, a complete mess. So, uh, yeah, I just think I think it was to me is pretty blatant. So, when you were
2: doing, uh, when you were re- reporting on this, and when you were writing about it, um, how much thought went into about like how you were, like when you would release articles, and or was it just as new information came, or did you kind of,
1: was it a planned kind of? No, it wasn't or? planned. No, it wasn't planned uh it's just as the information came and we benefited from help of a lot of whistleblowers so <laughs> we were getting a lot of good information but i mean for me uh, one of the big moments was when um we thought we'd kind of cracked it this was before we'd figured out we'd we'd got the invoice the fake invoice we thought we'd cracked it and we went to the um asx because they had their half year results and just chatting to someone there and About all the issues in the market, and they'd said, Oh, well, yeah, we think we don't think this is as egregious as you think, Jonathan. (laughs) And that was like, that was a terrifying moment for me, excuse me, because I was like, Oh my Lord, like people don't think there's anything wrong with this. They think this can all be explained with a few little disclosure fixes. It
2: was terrifying because people weren't aware what was going on or yes that you might have been wrong. Yeah, people that
1: mattered, so exchange didn't seem too fussed about it. Okay. Um, that was yeah, I was really taken aback by that.
2: And you felt as though they should have been given
1: things you had pointed out. I don't think they saw what I saw, which was bleedingly obvious, is that something was going on here. Um and that was terrifying. I basically I was terrified because I went walked out thinking, my lord if I don't solve this again, you know, like what what I'd done up to that point wasn't enough. If I don't do it again, if I don't go all the way, like I've carried the ball sixty meters, I actually have to put it over the touchline, take the ball, and then kick it through the through the goals uh, for people to actually appreciate what's going on. And I, I wasn't sure I'd be able to get there. I wasn't really sure I'd go the extra forty yards. I I didn't have the information at hand. I had to go out and, and gather, it and it was. It was actually really difficult, and we were. Ve- I was very fortunate to get that that extra information. It, it relied on whistleblowers coming forward with ins- extremely invaluable information, and then a few key insights like that, accounting, like working out the the cash on the uh, interest cut, which was kind of. fortunate that I knew someone that was so good at accounts, but serendipitous that they'd actually sat down with them and they'd kind of picked that up as a mm. as an issue. So it could have. Big could very easily have remained uncovered for many years. I think it was in the process of being added to the um, um, small cap index, which would have given it and legitimized it, would have put BlackRock and Vanguard, would have piled into the register. People would have piled out. Small caps would have just, um, fund managers, a lot of fund managers would probably just bought it just because they don't want to to manage their tracking error against the index. Uh, They would have had a whole lot of, Dumb money to, uh, would have come into it, and life would have gone on. And some time in the long future, it probably it something would have come down, come out. The share price might have fallen, but yeah, it was almost like Scooby Doo style. It would have got away with, away with it,
2: right? So, what was the the sort of the outcome of Big? Now, like
1: nowadays, it doesn't exist. Yeah, it went into administration. It was a messy process, but it's it's gone into administration. Shareholders have lost all their money um yeah and the ASX you know we we were quite critical of the ASX because but to be fair to them they they explained their position on it uh I think they have actually toughened up a lot on the smaller end of town I think the same way the papers were about their credibility I think the the ASX probably felt they weren't they were doing the right thing and they were monitoring things correctly I'm not suggesting they weren't but I think after that and I don't know if big was a catalyst but they've the sense is they've gotten a lot tougher, they're a lot, they scrutinize announcements a lot more. They, And I think the market's better for it. I think they, they just don't want to have another one of these uh, situations again. So, we've seen and noticed and some people even think they've become too tough. But I think rather be too tough, they're not tough enough.
2: Mm. Is there any way that you can sort of measure the, the
1: impact or the cost that this had on investors? well look once it went into administration I did ring a whole lot of investors some of them that sent me um, emails kind of s- making polite accusations um, but I didn't mind that I think again I totally understand where these people are coming from and just to explain to them they thought I was very unfair um to the company um, they thought I was thought I was making light of a lot of things which which i'd do not believe for a second. I took everything very, very seriously. And a lot of colleagues of mine are, are very professional and seen this before and always over my shoulder saying, Look, don't get carried away on this. You know, there are people like, as in, don't get carried away about how absurd this is and what they're doing. Like, there are people with money, life savings invested in this company. And just you need to be sensitive. You need to be mindful and sensitive of them. And I, I think I always was. And, um, when it did collapse, I did ring a whole lot of these investors and said, look, just do, do you want to share anonymously? So I wrote an article where I couldn't quote anyone by name because they just didn't want to be named. And there were some really sad stories of people that uh, pensioners that didn't have a lot of mo- Pensioners might have decent-sized balances, but they feel every loss because they aren't going to be working again. So they, well, the money they have is the money they have forever. So every they feel every dollar every dollar they lose hurts them way more than hurts anybody that has an income and can earn that dollar back. And there was someone that had saved like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a house who was going to get married um lost it all lost big chunk of his money in big and it's it's really sad i mean I, I when I wrote that article, people kind of got a a good feedback, but there were other people and and I don't disagree with them saying, well these people need to understand their risk better like why on earth have you got all this money in one position a speculative position at that and i I think I agree I think. <laughs> if there's a lesson from big for retail investors no matter how good the story is and no matter how mispriced an asset is you've got to like you've got to discount the fact that you could be 100% wrong and it's not going to it's not going to blow you up so Mm. yeah I think I mean that's a lesson for big I I don't think uh, but I I think some people learn it but there's always a conveyor belt of new fools that come and haven't learned that lesson and lose all their money and you know they're wiser for it but they're poorer for it and then um, yeah, they disappear, and then a new breed of people that can be convinced by, yeah, by riches kind of fall into the same trap. So people, different people, people learn, but it's different people learning at different times. Yeah.
2: So. No, I mean, you, you, I think you said that very well. And you won um, some awards or an award for this uh, this story, didn't you?
1: Or this, this series? Yeah, yeah, Walkley um, in last year, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. Done, <laughs> It was nice because all there were all these people that helped me in the background that I, well, I couldn't name them but it kind of it was good for them because they'd be able to feel some sense of that they contributed to something that was recognised. So, I mean, I'm lucky. I get my byline on there so people know I wrote the story and get congratulated. And But there's kind of made me think about all those people that helped me They, were, they were at least – half a dozen that were invaluable but there were probably a dozen that were valuable and yeah they a lot of them i don't even know their names they're still anonymous to me but like (laughs) i feel quite close to them because i had a lot of interactions with them and then there's probably a handful of people two in particular that aren't anonymous well i I know i know them i know them very well but they weren't they have they have busy day jobs and plenty to do but they invested a lot of time to help me just i think because they're just helpful people and they had the the knowledge and the intellect of solving these things, and I think I think a lot of them just want don't like these things. Like when they see something that's wrong on in finance, where people are being taken advantage of, or the systems being abused, the accounting rules are being abused, the markets being abused, they take it very. They, they take a they get fired up, and they they will spend those three hours every night, kind of helping me and. And yeah, actually the, the thing is people think a lot of fi- people in finance are um, greedy, but that, that's not true. There's a tiny sliver that are ultra greedy, I think. And most people are good people and they just want the system, they, they just want the system to be as fair as possible and mm. hate manipulation of of tra- of prices and of accounts. And uh, so, yeah, so that's actually kind of what keeps the paper going, I think. What keeps me going is all this, this silent army of people that want to make sure that everyone is kept honest.
2: Yeah. Actually, something I did want to ask you, I guess, in regards to this is, um, you know, obviously the information that you release and publish has um, great impact on the stock price. Or Sometimes, can do, yeah. Um, depend, you know, in this case, um, 100%. Yeah. Um, are you like, are there any kind of regulations that you've got to abide by or is there any sort of... Governance over that,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. There's like there's a code of code of conduct that we that everyone at the paper. Um, it's part of our employment, and it's been a while since I've <laughs> I've read it. But generally, the reporters are ethical. They know what their responsibilities are. They know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, um, and managing conflicts is kind of important. Again, it, it goes to our credibility. Look, if I was trading something, I wouldn't, I would never in a million years consider it, but if I was, it wouldn't be hard for someone to go onto a share register and see my name there, or, um, or someone to complain to ASIC and ASIC just makes one call to some brokerage firm and sees my name there. And, um, it'd, it'd probably be more likely to be like a company. Let's say I am, um, was spruiking a company and I had shares, or then someone found my name there. It's, <laughs> it's there's information is out there, so I think I think re- reporters know their responsibilities very well, and that's they're not there to. I can't think of any reporter that would that's in the in in this industry or in this profession to try and scalp a few dollars here and there. Like we're we're all about, and we're holding people to account. So we like why would we. If we're holding people vigorously to account, it'd be very hypocritical of us to, to yeah. do otherwise.
2: How do you feel about uh, the sort of the active um, activist short sellers, and the sort of the short hedge funds and that who will take a, a significant short position in a company and then release a, a hit piece on them? Like, how do you feel about the the ethics of that?
1: Uh, it's an interesting question. <sighs> I don't know. I'm kind of divided on it. Like, my view is. There's short selling and there's market manipulation, and you need to totally separate those two things. They are completely opposite. They don't go hand in hand. I mean, they, 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 yeah, they, they, they are two different things. There's manipulation, market manipulation of a stock up or down, and there's activism, long and short. So, whenever there's market manipulation, I think that's wrong. I think if you're manipulating something on the short side, that's wrong. But if you're manipulating it on the short side, on the long side, that's wrong too. Short selling, I think, is is really important. It really has a really important role. Um, but I guess the information has to be right, and I think short sellers also live and die by their credibility. So if they put out reports that are not credible, over time they will lose their impact. So they have an interest to uh, make sure that whatever they're putting out is credible. I think we've seen some kind of copycat activist shorts. I think there was. I think the company was Credit Corp in oh, on yeah, the ASX. Yeah, yeah. And and we took one look at that, everyone took one look at that and, God, this is just a total, this is just amateur hour and I don't think it impacted the stock at all. Um, in terms of, I think the way where there's, where there's a very grey area and I don't know the answer to this but I think it's interesting is is like the timing of, of issues, you know, like if a if people are taking a position and then the report comes out, you know, obviously – like Glaucus, they I think they were quite open. We took a position, and then we put out our report, and we made money from that. Mm-hmm. Um, then their credibility matters whether they're right or wrong. If they're wrong, then they can, can rightly be accused of just doing a kind of a hit job, you know, <laughs> to drive the price down. But if they're right, then it's hard to argue too much about it. What is interesting is then if like if other people are aware of the report coming out, I think I think these guys do the credible ones go to great lengths to make sure that they're not telling the world that they're about to put out a report and they, just to protect their own reputation, I think they keep it secret, the timing of their reports. But, you know, what's interesting, and we're seeing this in the UK and Germany with Wirecard, I don't know if you follow that situation. So Wirecard um, was the subject of a lot of activist shorting. Um, The Financial Times has also done a lot of very good detailed reporting on it but the the FT is being accused of by German regulators, which they stringently deny, of of I think and I might get this wrong, but broadly my understanding is they're being accused of making people aware of when their reports are, when their news reports are coming out. So okay. they, they've said that people have been aware that the FT will publish something on the Friday. Or now that's an interesting one because. As a reporter, I think there is. It is difficult to manage that. I think it's important you don't say when you're going to publish something. But if you've rung someone for a bit of information, or to check a fact, or to get their view on some accounting, or or something like that, then um, someone might be able to work out. Oh well, they're on the verge of writing a report. So it's it's kind of it's a bit like like ASIC. Let's say ASIC goes around and interviews a whole lot of um, uh and traders and. Those traders might know, hey, ASIC's looking into this issue, you know, mm. <laughs> and they're going to put out a report and maybe I should short that industry or something like that. So, it's a difficult one and I think, I had to look, I don't know what the right, I think any man- manipulation is bad, any kind of trading on that front, uh, it's, it's not right. I think- Good ethical people know what's right and wrong. Good ethical reporters know what's right and wrong. And um,
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a I tricky think that's one. A it answer. is a tricky one. Yeah. And obviously, we, we've spent majority of the time here speaking about um, Beg, and we spoke about Blue Sky a little bit at the beginning. Um, there's also been a bunch of other cases that you've worked on. Um, you briefly you mentioned it before,
1: Slater and Gordon. Yeah. Get Swift. Yeah, Get Swift was more, more my colleagues. So I was just in the background cheering them on, but. Um, that, that was a, yeah, I didn't have much, I didn't have anything to do with Getswift other than piping in with a few comments there, but okay. that was a very interesting one as well.
2: Has there, has there been, um, you know, as a, uh, as a reporter, obviously you get um, sort of highly recognized for certain things and there's probably some things which don't get as much attention, which you're quite proud of. Um, hmm. You know, like I do some podcasts which <laughs> yeah. I think are awesome <laughs> yeah. podcasts but they're maybe not as popular as yeah, like yeah, yeah. some yeah. of the ones which get a lot of traction. Totally, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, no, I get that. Uh, there's there's a lot of that. I feel a lot of that at times, yep. yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> are there any um, examples of that which which stand out or anything on the top of your mind?
1: Uh, I, I tell you what, one article that I'm most – the one article that I keep referring to, it's got nothing to do with finance, but it's like really stuck in my head and uh, like every time I watch sport, it's, it sticks with me and it's totally changed the way I watch sport, is um, I interviewed this former wallaby called Ben Darwin Okay, he's a he'd actually be good on the, on the podcast <laughs> I reckon people would listen to it he's a former wallaby and he went into data he accidentally fell into data science and he's come up with this whole theory which I which ever since he's told it to me I see it in in play um which is um cohesion and teamwork which is um the more a team is together a more team is assembled and plays together and reinforces each other the more successful they are the more they understand each other um so he, yeah he studied the crusaders and he said they all came from the same high school so by the time they play for the wallabies they're all very cohesive and well integrated um and he he's he's um maybe i can send the, send you the, the link so yeah, you, you cool. can see But. um and I'm an Arsenal fan of English football and I remember a few, couple of years ago he told me Spurs and Liverpool would be the the, the top teams <laughs> in England because they were the most cohesive and they had built their whole club around. Um, the directors had a, like a, a vision of the club and building it from the ground up and making sure that it was s- sustainable and not just over-investing in talent mm-hmm. um, that wasn't sustainable for short-term fixes. And he was right. I think Liverpool and Spurs, unfortunately, as an Arsenal fan are playing in the Champions League. So, there's actually, there's things like that that I, I like when I'm – because I'm often writing negative stories and takedowns. Not often, but that's a big focus. Um, And it's nice to be able to identify – and this is something you do more than, way more than I do is identify these great intellects and talents and insightful people and, and draw it out of them. So, every time I do that, I'm um, – Kind of offsets the fact that I've caused trouble somewhere. I feel like maybe they can keep the universe in in zen when I when I interview a very good fund manager and he rings me up and he said, "Oh, we we got a call from so and so on the back of your article and they're interested in investing in us and things like that." That's that's when I yeah I kind of like those articles.
2: Okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'll make sure to grab that link from you and I'll, I'll put that in yeah, the chat. Yeah, I think he's
1: been right and I think he applied it to finance, been doing and he said, look, a company, it's so important to have a good board of directors, governing it from the top with a long-term view rather than, that's more important than the coach or the players, it's the board, it all stems from governance and yeah, you see it a lot, you see like the best teams are the ones and the best organisations are the ones that have a a good culture and it's set from the top, and they're not trying to get somewhere too quickly. They're trying to build something. So,
2: yeah, okay. All right, cool. Um, what are your thoughts? I don't know if you have a, a, a like, a what sort of answer you'll go, give on this, but what are your thoughts on the current state of financial journalism? You know, you've been doing this for, is it about 10 years now?
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's healthy. I, I really do believe it. Like, from the paper's point of view, I think. Ten, almost ten years at the AFI, I've, I've begun to appreciate. Um, I think as un, I think as valued as brands like the AFI, I think they almost undervalued as to these long serving mastheads because we've got we've got a brand, so we've got re- we've got th- uh, tens of thousands of readers, so we have reach, which means people have to take us seriously when we ask them questions. We've got lots of experienced journalists. Um, We all gather together in one place every day or online every day and can share information so I'll know tons of people and then my colleague will know tons of people. And so we can, like a real node of information, we've got um, access to a whole lot of things, we've got um, legal support which allows us to push stories further than other people might, Um, uh, tons of resources. So I think like that, uh, and we we are we are unbiased effectively. We're not pushing any agenda. We're just out looking for good stories and and information. Like we're trying to address that information asymmetry that's out there, you know where someone knows a lot. and so like that's where we pref- uh, so i think I think the thing I've come to appreciate is just the power of a very well resourced brand with credibility and reach. and I think, um, I think whether I'm there or like I sit, it's like me driving a car, if I leave, I think someone else would come in and drive it e- almost, well, I'd like to think almost equally well, <laughs> probably better. Um, So I just think, and that's something why I always don't get too carried away my own abilities because I think 90% of what I do is just the fact that I'm in the right seat at the right organization with the right reach. So it's just like have all the tools and, and do you use them well. And I, th- I think there's tons of people at the paper that use them, there's, I think, yeah like, like I guess my own point is it's it's the AFR that's really kind of it's the brand that's allowed these stories to get written more so th- more so than me. I think uh, I'm kind of just the in the cockpit and it's, I didn't design the plane. Um, but I, th- I think we like one thing that's changed is there's a lot more voices out there. social media is a good and bad. I think overall it's a good if you want the truth. The problem is there's just more information out there, almost too much. But if, if kind of if you know who's credible, it's up to us journalists to kind of – there's so many voices in the blogosphere of which some are extremely intelligent and valuable and find things out. And it's kind of – I feel like our role in this new age is to find the good ones and screen out the bad ones and use the information they provide us to take it to the next level, whether it's they've given us a tip and we can get it all the way or we can take what they've discovered and broadcast it to a wider audience. So. What worries me a little bit is that there are platforms where they aren't as credible I think I'm not saying they uh, they aren't as credible as I don't think they governed well um and and I just worry that the wrong information is getting to a lot of people and there's this whole oh, I don't believe don't believe the mainstream media or you know <laughs> that worries me a little bit I mean we're not perfect the mainstream media we do get things wrong but we have good process and credibility and brand and access and most of the t- almost all the time, I believe we're on the money or we've at least done what we can to make sure what we're, that we're writing is true. So my one concern is that some – I just hope that um, we can't I – th- I, think, I think we're doing well in this age and we'll continue to do the, do well in this age and, and we're benefiting from a diversity of voices. I think – like I learn so much from podcasts that have no affiliation to any brand. The content is terrific and that's good. I think more information is better. I don't think – anyone should try the monopoly on good info so it's good i just do worry that sometimes people with self-interest um might be able to use this new digital social media age to kind of attract <laughs> some full, uh, attract people's to this to people to their schemes
2: yeah i know what you're saying i know exactly what you're saying cool all right jonathan well let's leave it there let's call this a wrap um if someone wants to follow you i know you're pretty active or reasonably active on twitter
1: yeah yeah johnny shap yeah J-O-H-N-N-Y-S-H-A-P. but read the afr i reckon is <laughs> your first point yeah. of call
2: um if someone wants to specifically find your articles on afr is there a way to do that like is there an author page or yeah
1: you can go on my twitter there's like a link just to the on the twitter bio just just the ones i've written but yeah okay but there's plenty of other good articles in the afi so
2: great and i'll put um a bunch of links from different things we've referenced yeah. throughout this um sure. in the show notes all right jonathan well i really appreciate you taking my the time pleasure. to do this and um you know allowing us to come in here and absolutely a pleasure. great conversation so thank you
1: no worries my pleasure thanks you've reached the end of this episode of chat
0: with traders